everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 76 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I, as always, am your host today. Today's episode, if you haven't already guessed by the title, is about somebody called Michael X. Now you may or may not know anything about this man. Um, and I will say he, whilst when he was alive, he in some ways branded himself to be, you know, the most famous black man at one point in Britain. Um, you know, I don't think he pulled that off, shall we say. Hence why you may not know who he is. He was born Michael De Freitas. On the 17th of August, 1933, in Belmont, Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago. In his life, he also went by the names of Michael Abdul Malik and Abdul Malik. Um, and you can probably assume there, there was a link to Islam and the Nation of Islam um, at some point in his life, which we'll get to later. Now, the, you know, information that I'm sharing with you today about this man and his very interesting life so so interesting um i feel like this podcast won't go the way you expect um because this podcast tends to speak about some of the really inspirational influential black figures um within the caribbean and britain um but michael x is a bit different he doesn't really fit that mold um i'm not going to condemn him before the episode even started but we are obviously going to going to talk about his life and you know you'll see by the time we get to the end of the podcast you can kind of decide for yourself really what you make of him um I think he lived a very 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 interesting life now as I said the information I got um for this episode comes from two places in the primary um and that is um an article no a book sorry called Michael X A Life in Black and White by John Williams um, an article um, in The Independent called, um, of the same title, it's a review, Michael X, um, A Life in Black and White by John Williams, Notting Hill to Death Row. And also a documentary, um, which I was really excited to find out that a documentary existed because I've wanted to make this episode for a really long time, but I haven't felt like I knew enough about him. Um, and obviously with documentaries, you know, you take on the bias of the producer, the director, whoever, you know, envisioned the documentary but it was very it was a very good documentary I really enjoyed it um, and it really I think gave you the picture of his life and in a way that other people saw him as well as how he saw himself and that's called Hustler Revolutionary Outlaw um, and it's on Sky I believe um, I watched it on Now TV I got a free seven day trial so maybe do that if you want to learn more about him have you listened to this episode, which I always, I always implore you to do. Very important. Um, this is, this podcast is always just a start. Um, it's never, you know, the, the be all and end all of every historical person, event, figure, topic, moment. And so, Michael X, as you said, he is from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and he was born to, and I quote, an obia practicing woman from Barbados. And obia is um, a form of spirituality, shall we say. It's a different belief system. 
Um, it is demonised. It is often referred to as witchcraft. Um, it's often referred to as like black magic or like the dark arts, shall we say. Um, but it is simply another spiritual belief, really. Um, you know, whether you think it is positive or negative, that is up to you. Um, but yeah, that was his mom. And his father was an absent Portuguese man from St. Kitts. Um, so this meant that he was mixed race and quite light skinned. And he was encouraged by his mom to actually pass as white as his skin was so fair. Um, and the Caribbean is a pigmentocracy or definitely was at that time, whereby the lighter skinned you are, the kind of preferential treatment you often got in society. Um, and as a child, as a young man, he went as Red Mike. Red meaning light skinned in the context of the Caribbean. And so... He was said to be really headstrong. He was expelled from school by the age of 14 and he ended up in seafaring, um, working on the seas. And that job is what brought him to Britain. He ended up settling in West London, where, as you know, if you've been listening to any of these episodes, there was already a big community of black people, mostly from the Caribbean. Um, the area was poor, it was run down and... The notorious slum landlord, Peter Rackman. Peter Rackman, I will be doing an episode on him before this year is out. He's, again, one of those episodes I've always wanted to do. But he was notorious. He was a slum landlord um, and he held, I think, probably a majority of his properties in West London. But essentially, you know, he took no prisoners. He didn't discriminate either which is the only positive you can say about him but when I say that I mean he didn't discriminate with who he was gonna you know absolutely violate to get the right amount of rent um when he wanted it um but he was a landlord he owned lots of properties he would rent out to anyone that needed it often terrible conditions residents were often unhappy um and then that meant that you know they would complain or withhold rent and he would send round his henchmen um to make sure that money was collected. We're going to get into a little bit more about Peter Rackman later um, because his life and Michael X's intersect. Of course they do. Anyway, Michael X, um, when he was in Britain, in West London, as I said, it's a poor area. You know, we know the story. Black men, regardless of how qualified they were, and women too, were not getting the jobs that they wanted, um, needed. And so... He ended up taking up hustling and pimping. Um, so, you know, he didn't this. He didn't like choose, or he couldn't go into probably low skilled work, which would have been low paid, like a lot of other um, people might have done. Um, yeah, he ended up in in the in the illegal trades, in the underground trades of hustling and pimping. Um, he met his first wife, a young woman from Guyana, at that point. Um, but this is also the late 1950s and racial tensions are really, really high. And in 1958, during the Notting Hill riots, um, which there is an episode on, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen, have a go. Um, he was, you know, there at the time and him and some friends were actually arrested. But he told the police, and I quote, you've made a mistake. I'm not black. I'm a Jew. <laughs> Ah, and he was released and a able to help bail his friends out in the, like, moments after and days after. Now, you know, his mom said he was light-skinned and, you know, encouraged him to pass as white. And he did exactly that in England. Why he felt the need to call himself a Jew is 
a little bit beyond me. Um, but he clearly wanted to distance himself from the situation. Um, and I guess it also, I mean, it shows the difference in treatments of the police of Jewish people and black people for the first thing. Um, second thing, it shows, I think, the kind of quick-witted nature of Michael X. And, I mean, at this point, he's Michael DeVarita's. But, you know, his, in, his ability to get out and wiggle his way out of any situation. He's been arrested and he was your audacity to stand up there and say I am not a black man you've made a mistake that is ballsy I'll be honest with you um I wouldn't do that um not that I probably could pass as a white person but you know um I if I could I wouldn't um but yeah this kind of gives you a bit of insight into this man now I said his life crosses paths with Peter Rackman and I said that Rackman is not a nice guy but De Freitas, you know, struggling to seek work. He's doing all these underground jobs that are, you know, keeping him mixed up in the wrong crowd, to put it lightly. And he ends up becoming one of Rackman's chuck-outers, as they're called. He would collect money and throw people out, basically one of his henchmen. As I said, they didn't discriminate racially. So it meant that this man, this black man, even though he can pass as white, from Trinidad, who's just moved to Britain, is essentially, you know, throwing his own community out on the streets, extorting them of money, denying them um, suitable housing, safe housing. And, yeah, this is happening in West London to black people. While it's orchestrated by Peter Rackman, who is not a black man, you know, defraters is is a henchman of him he's on his payroll um and i think this is where you know we we don't necessarily look at um michael defraters with a positive eye from this moment and from the hustling and pimping as well of course but this story is not you know it's not going to fit the mold of the you know typical stories i tell on this podcast um but i think it was important to share the story of this man um because the story is so different and you know it's all right to say that you know people came over and made really did make the best of a terrible situation in some cases but some people didn't you know not everybody that came on those ships or those planes in that time was able to do something positive with their life and i'm not making excuses for michael defraters for turning to the criminal underworld um, but not everybody has that will and the resolve to keep pushing when so many things are pushing against you. And I think this is an example of that. Um, I think it's also an example of the kind of hard-headed, headstrong nature that he exerted and showed when he was 14, potentially. Um, but, you know, this is his life and we will continue. So... Working for Rackman was obviously a difficult job. Um, he is, he's extorting black people, man. His own community. How can that be good? But eventually, you know, it really does hit him. And he's like, oh, I feel bad about this. I don't want to do this anymore. He becomes more conscious. He hangs around with a lot of students. Um, and they begin to open his mind a little bit. And, you know, he is a keen learner. He wants to know more. You know, he said he felt stifled by being in the environment of the ghetto 
and he's referring to West London as the ghetto. Um, obviously, right now, it's definitely not that. Um, but then, you know, it would have been um, to him. And so he wants to fill his time and he wants to fill his, his kind of space, physical space, with these students so that he can learn more um, and open his mind to some of the movements in regards to black power, um, but maybe not under that name, as this is a little bit earlier, and also um, to movements of um, just black liberation more broadly. Um, you know, so he starts to get on this positive path, shall we say. And it just so happens that in 1965, My- Malcolm X, Michael X, Malcolm X, Malcolm X from America, comes to Britain um, in 1965. And he comes to Birmingham, which we know because there's been an episode on it. Um, But I think he's in London first. So, Michael, Malcolm meet, because at this point, Michael is kind of rebranding into this, like, woke black guy that's all for the struggle now. Um... And Malcolm asks him, actually, you know, what are you doing for black people? And it's noted that when Malcolm X came um, to Britain, he didn't want to, you know, go and see the tourist spots of London. He wanted to go into these quote-unquote ghettos to see what was happening to people. He went to Birmingham. He went to Smethwick, episode 20, if you haven't listened already. Um, You know, he calls ahead to people organising um, so that he can be in those right places to have these important conversations with black people and Asian people about what is happening to them in these countries, even outside of America. Now, interestingly enough, and this is where Michael X is born, by name only, um, when he is on his way to Birmingham, he calls ahead um, to organise accommodation. And on the phone to the hotel receptionist, as the story goes... He says, oh, my brother, as in, you know, in a kind of, oh, we're in this movement together, another black man, my brother. He says, my brother's coming too. Um, And we can assume he means it, obviously, in a non-literal way. The people, they've just met each other. They are not from, you know, they're not even from the same country. Um, But this was taken literally. And he said, my brother Michael is coming. And obviously Malcolm's surname at this point is X. So they know Michael's name down with the surname X, because they believe it's his literal brother. So, Michael X is born. Michael Defratus becomes Michael X. <laughs> and it's quite simple there, really. It was a, a kind of mis, misunderstanding. But this kind of breeds a new chapter into his life um, as he becomes a well-known um, exponent, shall we say, of black power. He decides to work in London for black people instead of against them. He puts his henchmen days, his chukarauta days behind him. Um, But it was also at this time that, you know, Malcolm X unfortunately was murdered because that was only nine days after he went to Birmingham. Um, And I believe this would have probably spurred him on. You know, it would have deeply upset him, but spurred him on. And, you know, Michael X at this point goes on to form a group called the Racial Adjustment Action Society. Um, and the acronym for that is RAS. Now, if you're Jamaican, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not, then let's just say I could never say that word to my nan, otherwise I would be sent back to meet my maker. Now, 
at this point, he begins to get a lot of media attention, claiming to be the leader of this black nationalist organisation, Ross. But he's kind of a bit of a silly one with it because he just wanted, like, you know, formal British BBC broadcasters to say Ross on national telly, which is um, an expletive in Jamaican patois. So, you know, Michael X becomes the spokesperson in some ways for movements for black liberation. Now, I would say this is a, a fact that is still true today. The British media tend to tend to want to find a spokesperson for the black community. Um, today, back then, and I'm sure in the future. And so they kind of lean on him. He's the one that's getting, I guess, called for all the talks. He's becoming that spokesperson. However, they're not letting him forget the fact that he worked for Peter Rackman. He was a chukarauta. You know, he was a henchman of that man who was doing awful things to very vulnerable, financially vulnerable and otherwise vulnerable people um, across London. Um, So, you know, from that moment, his reputation is already tarnished. It's like, how can you be the person to liberate black people or even to kind of have ideas about it when you were so far on the other side of oppressing and exploiting them in ways um, and this stays with him and it I mean it stayed with him till today it's something that is a contradiction in his life I mean unfortunately if it was today he'd probably be cancelled <laughs> but you know he was given grace by some people um, to kind of grow and adapt into this leader of this black nationalist organisation. Now, a string of events occurred in Michael X's life that lead him down a very dark path to his kind of, should we call it a bitter end, Um, in Trinidad. And we're going to go through those um, events. Now, by 1967, just as an overview, Ross had about 60,000 followers. So it was doing something positive um, and it had followers. And, you know, he would then, Michael X, become this kind of organiser, especially for civil rights leaders in the US when they came to Britain. Muhammad Ali, when he came to fight, he organised the bodyguards. Um, and he continuously represented black people politically or, you know, he kind of pushed himself to a pedestal where he could do that. In 1967, Stokely Carmichael comes to visit, also known as Kwame Ture, and I believe it's episode 66 where I talk about that. I feel like I've mentioned so many elements close to Michael X's life and people throughout the past 76 episodes and the fact that it's kind of all tying together in this episode is making me really happy I'm very excited there's going to be a few more kind of full circle moments in this one so stay tuned um so 1967 but he is actually um banned from the country pretty much midway through his tour and he leaves Um, There's like the special branch officers and the black power desk that are, you know, running their surveillance on black um, figures in Britain. And, you know, this was obviously not good because it led to people like Stokely Carmichael being kicked out. You know, the Mangrove Nine were on the surveillance desk, um, all the big names. Um, And 
it actually meant that Stokely Carmichael, him being um, expelled from the country or told to leave, he left an open slot for a speech he was doing, um, I think it was in Reading. And Michael X took his place. Now, this is where things start to go wrong. Because in 1965, fast forward, rewind two years, the Race Relations Act was passed. And anyone that listened to last week's episode will know exactly what I'm talking about or what I'm about to say. The Race Relations Act is meant to protect black people, Asian people, from racism. Race relations, racism. So, why is it then that this man, our good fellow, reformed character, trying to be, you know, leading the black people, liberating them, why is he the first person to be sentenced for, you know, going against breaching the Race Relations Act. He's prosecuted under this act. Can you believe it? Now, this just doesn't say something about him. This says a lot about the British justice system. And if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know what I think about that. Because there was clearly no justice for David Alawale. And in this case, this wasn't justice because... I'm going to tell you what he said that warranted his um, arrest and charge. And, you know, I don't really... I wasn't there at the time. I understand the context of the time, but I understand how saying things like this um, can be taken. But realistically, did it warrant him going to prison? Well, I'll tell you what he said. He said... And I quote, and this was at the speech at an event in Reading, and he was referring to the Notting Hill race riots. He said, in 1958, I saw white savages kicking black women in the streets and black brothers running away. If you ever see a white laying hands on a black woman, kill him immediately. And within that same speech, he also went on to say that white men have no soul. Now, this is obviously not a great thing to say at all but within the context of Notting Hill riots in 1958 where this man is seeing white men beat and kick down black women you know it's not rocket science why he might say something like that because there is a feeling that a lot of people feel and it's called anger it's called frustration it's called fear sometimes Um, So to think that, you know, he actually went to prison for these words under an act that was supposed to protect him as a black man in Britain is very laughable to me. Um, Ridiculous. Very silly. But that's what happens. So he served time in prison. Ross ends up being disbanded by 1968 because benefactors pull their funding and memberships radically fall. You know, he he can't really be the face of this kind of movement in prison, unfortunately. Um, And whilst, you know, a lot of um, civil rights leaders end up in prison for various stints of time and for various um, different reasons... Um, I think his movement and him already being such a controversial character um, don't do him any favours at this point. Whereas, you know, there are other leaders that have been to prison, rightly or wrongly so. um, And because their movement 
um, and the people that follow it and believe in them is stronger it sometimes can intensify the movement the injustice of them going to prison but that doesn't happen so much for Michael X although when he does come out he is ready um you know he's kind of regrouped his brain and and figured out some things in prison and when he comes out he ends up joining various other militant black organizations really takes on this identity as Michael X um and you know is essentially shunned by the media um who kind of yeah don't really want much to do with him as a spokesperson um he begins to kind of exploit this image he has as a revolutionary um to gain money um financial gain um and then very abruptly very suddenly in 1971 he announces that he's had enough he's not doing black power anymore um he abandons those ideologies and goes back to trinidad um and yeah I don't know if you expected that. I didn't, but that's what happened. And this is kind of why I'm so fascinated with this man, because his life is just not, it just doesn't fit the trajectory that I just expect it to go on. And whenever I've read about his life, I've just been like, wow, like, how did you get to where you got to, sir? How? And when you get to the end of this, you'll really understand why I'm saying this, because how? How did he get there? Anyway, so... He decides not to go back to West London after prison. Um, we're rewinding. We'll get back to Trinidad in a second. Um, maybe even next episode, actually. So he leaves prison. He's in there for about eight months, but he's still under surveillance when he comes out. Um, police are still watching him. They don't like him, you know. He's saying things they don't want him to say. He's doing things they don't want him to do. He's probably never made a legal penny in his life. He is a bit of a blagger. Um, and he's getting lots of money. And we're going to talk about this. So... Um, he meets a man called Nigel Samuel, whose dad was a millionaire, and they fund this place called Black House. And Black House is essentially like a cultural centre, community centre type vibe and energy. Um, and it's supposed to kind of have, um, a supermarket, a restaurant, a cultural centre. It's a hub, basically, for young black people that are kind of a little bit down and out don't really have much going on or know what's going on um it's for them um you know sammy davis jr muhammad ali john lennon gave him ten thousand pounds this is where he's building up all this press and you know he's getting all this money and john lennon and yoko ono actually have photographs on top of black house with a bag of their hair which they swapped for um Muhammad Ali's bloodied shorts that he'd worn in a boxing fight that Michael X had. Um, And then, obviously, one was auctioned for World Peace. The other one was auctioned off for Black House. He's got so much money funneling in. However, he's not really spending on the right things. You know, he's having a lavish office. Everything looks nice. But, you know, if you're saying you're helping black young people, you don't really need a fancy office to do that. Um, So, again, it's just where, you know... This man just, just doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense. It's kind of greed. He's he's a hustler. He's he's looking for money, um, and this was kind of the tone of the documentary. And I don't know if my tone is too harsh when I speak about this man, um, because you know that there, there just are so few redeeming factors about some of the things he's done. But then I think anything could be twisted negatively, um, especially looking back at a man like him. But what ended 
his kind of time in the UK, shall we say, and add him back to Trinidad very quickly, um, was an incident that ended Black House as well as um, Michael X's time in the UK. So there was a dispute um, with one of the young men that worked for and kind of hung out at Black House and Michael X kind of dragged him back to Black House and essentially they had like a trial, shall we say, for him to kind of convict him of his crimes but obviously none of them are real you know um people with any legal influence or power so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a theatrical mess um but it takes a really sadistic turn and a lot of the um kind of stories people had on that documentary that I watched about him when they spoke about him doing kind of the henchman work for Peter Rackman said he was very like sadistic and violent um following the tactics of Rackman no doubt but this kind of follows on to this story because they made um allegedly um this is from a witness at the time they made the man um that they had kind of um staged in this court because he'd done something or other um they made him put a slave collar on um to atone for the persecution of black men um, and as soon as he left and called the police, they were all arrested. So he was on bail um, at the time uh, for this. You can't be putting a slave collar on people. Definitely not to atone for persecution of black people. Um, he essentially runs. He flees. He runs straight to Trinidad in 1971. Um, and, you know, him doing so means he's not part of black house anymore he resigns he's just not present in that in that time in the uk um which feels very abrupt and i will say you know britain doesn't try and extradite him back they don't try and pull him back to kind of pay for his crimes or go to prison or be be tried in court they say up oh, thank goodness he's gone we'll leave him to trinidad and i'll be honest with you by 1972, he was found guilty of murder and within three years, he was hung. He was executed for murder. And, you know, if this story hasn't had enough twists and turns and shocks and shakes, that is the biggest one for me. And at, there was one point where I'd read, I'd read about the incidents that happened in Trinidad and I'd read about Michael X in the UK and I thought it was two different people that might just have similar names because he had so many names anyway but it's not his life was really just that insane but we're not going to talk any more about his life today you're going to have to wait till next week to find out more I mean Google is free and you can always find out what happened if you want or you can wait till next week Monday um and find out why Michael X, you know, was sentenced to death in 1972 and dead by 1975. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed the introduction to Michael X. Have a wonderful week. 
Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.